If you've got a mystery, they'll take the job. Intrepid Detectives Waddle and Dob. June 25th, 1867. Renowned London private investigators Charles Wartle and Silas Dobb were beginning their day inside their very fancy, state-of-the-art-for-the-19th-century detective agency, surrounded by many leather-bound books, loads of mahogany office furniture, and whimsical decorative touches fitting of the best private investigators outside of Scotland Yard. Wattle perched on the burgundy divan, polishing his beloved tuba, while Dolb readjusted his deerstalker hat and idly sifted through the day's post. Oi, what have you got there, Dob? Just a few letters today, Waddle. Another message of gratitude from the Countess of Rosebury for finding her lost Pomeranian, Cedric. Mm-hmm. The payment from Lords of London for figuring out that fellow faked his death by pretending to be his own ghost. And, oh, look here, Waddle. Is that envelope from the Queen? Do read it out loud for us, Dob. Pardon us? You know I mean me and Archibald. Archibald was the name of Wattle's tuba. You're so right. How on earth could I forget? All right, then. This missive was just penned last evening. <clears throat> the 24th of June, year of our Lord, 1867. My dear sirs, Wattle and Dob. Your reputation as expert investigators is exemplary, and your discretion is welcomed in the issue at hand. I require your assistance in this manner of great importance to the English people. You see, today I was informed that a thief has taken for his own nefarious purposes the entirety of one of the most important heritage sites of our history. A whole site, you say? Hold on there, Wattle, I'm just learning about this too. It continues. Within the past day, it has come to the attention of the palace that the building known as the birthplace of William Shakespeare, one of our greatest national treasures, has been stolen right from under the noses of its guardians in Stratford-upon-Avon. Blimey, give that ear. (laughs) Bloody awful, isn't it? Says here, the only clue provided by this odious villain in the enclosed frontispiece from one of the printings of Shakespeare's first folios, left under a crumbling brick at the site where the house stood proudly since the 16th century, until today. I trust that you both will be able to solve the case and return the house of Shakespeare to its rightful location before the people of England learn that this treasure has vanished. The trustees at Stratford-upon-Avon are currently telling visitors that the home has been temporarily moved for a complex restoration treatment, but this charade must duly come to an end. Please reply post-haste if you are able to accept this case. Sincerely, Victoria Kensington Palace. Shakespeare's entire birthplace in Stratford-upon-Avon. Why, who on earth would steal an entire building? Here's the frontispiece of the first folio that the Queen mentioned. The page looks to be torn out of a volume. The title page reads, Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies, published in 1623. To be or not to be, right? If I remember correctly, there were only ever 750 copies of that printed, and someone tore out the title page. What could that mean? Cord Dob, on the reverse of the folio page, written in ink, the inscription says, I deserved it, so now it's mine. (laughs) Deserved it? I think this bloke deserves a right bollocking, he does. We'll be accepting this case, right, Dob? Aye, Wattle. It's up to us now to find the bard's birthplace and return it to Stratford-upon-Avon. I'll pen the letter to the palace at once. 
How will Waddle and Dob find the missing building? Does the clue on the back of the title page mean anything? Will Waddle entertain us with a little tune on the tuba? Find out after a few words from our sponsors. Don't you wish you were on island time all the time? At Archipelago's Coffee, we have you covered. We bring you the best of coffee from Indonesia, Japan, the Philippines, the Maldives, and Scotland. At our locations in the Florida Keys and Hawaii, we even have a swim-up coffee bar. Can't wait for your next trip to a volcanic island chain? We ship to you right from our home base near the Thousand Islands, which, yes, is an archipelago in the St. Lawrence River. For those who know, drink a cup of Archipelago's. Beauty. Warmth. High-quality maple products. Canada. Travelers today want more than an experience. They want to be transformed. They want to be moved. And where better to move you than Canada, America's jaunty hat to the Great White North. From Prince Rupert to Halifax, Canada is the English-speaking but still foreign enough destination that will charm and delight you. So bring your passport, your love of adventure, and an empty bag to fill with cheap medication and legal cannabinoids, and come on up to Canada. This ad brought to you by Destination Canada for Glowing Hearts. Our investigators decided to split up for the research portion of this investigation. Waddle contacted his acquaintance at the National Portrait Gallery, which owned the most famous of portraits that may depict William Shakespeare. Dob headed to his favorite, most exciting place in the entire city of London, the Public Records Office. After several hours of research, the partners reconvened to share their findings. What an enlightening afternoon I had today, Dob. Quite right, Waddle. Allow me to give you my rundown on the life and times of William Shakespeare. Would you mind terribly if I tested out my American accent? There was a truly fascinating research at the public records office, and now I have her accent stuck right in my head, I do. (laughs) By all means. Shakespeare was born in Stratford-upon-Avon, England in 1564. It turns out that the exact date of his birth isn't known, but it is generally celebrated on April 23rd. We do know that he was baptized on April 26th, and it was common practice at the time to have an infant be baptized no later than the first Sunday after birth. Shakespeare's parents were John and Mary, nay Arden, who were married in about 1557. William was the oldest surviving child. Two infant daughters died before William was born. His younger siblings were Gilbert, Joan, Anne, Richard, and Edmund. William likely attended grammar school though it isn't quite the same definition of school as we have these days. Grammar school in the 16th century meant an intensive education in Latin grammar and literature, taught every day except on Sundays, with a half day off on Thursdays year-round. The school day typically ran from 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. with a two-hour break for lunch. That's quite a long school year. (laughs) That sounded awful silly, didn't it? (laughs) It did. (laughs) By the time he was 10, Shakespeare was translating Cicero, Terence, Virgil, and Ovid. As part of this education, the students performed Latin plays to better understand rhetoric. That may be where he got his flair for the dramatic. There is no record of him attending university anywhere. At age 18 in 1582, William Shakespeare was issued a special license to marry Anne Hathaway. Gosh, that really is an award-winning name, isn't it? Anne was 26 and, 
a scandal, gave birth to their first daughter, Susanna, just six months later. Two years later, William and Anne welcomed twins, Judith and Hamnet, in 1585. Hamnet, you say? It's not an error. It's not Hamlet. It's Hamnet. The twins were named after neighbours of theirs, Hamnet and Judith Sadler. For a few years after that, William Shakespeare isn't traceable through records. This is what's known as his lost years. He shows back up with a vengeance in 1592, where he is known as both an actor and playwright in London. That's about 146 miles away from the Shakespeare home in Stratford-upon-Avon. Here in London, though, William was part owner of an acting troupe called Lord Chamberlain's Men, named so for their benefactor. In 1596, his only son, Hamnet, died at age 11 and a half of an unknown illness, though we all know about 16th century England and its potential outbreaks, don't we? <laughs> By 1598, William's name appeared on the title pages of plays which he had written. He was investigated as possibly holding grains to profit from scarcity in the market due to a series of bad harvests, which caused a steep increase in the price of grains and malts. William had enough money to afford land holdings and a lease on tithes in Old Stratford, where he earned income from grain, hay, wool, lamb, and other country materials. Basically, Shakespeare was a keen businessman in addition to being able to churn out plays. He also bought investment properties in London to be closer to his theatre. What happened with the rest of his family while he was getting rich and famous? Well, his only son had died. His eldest daughter, Susanna, married a local doctor named John Hall in 1607. We see Susanna pop back up in the records in 1613 when she and John Hall sued a man for slander. This card named John Lane, who at this point would have known that Susanna was the daughter of the famous actor and writer William Shakespeare, went around town saying that Susanna had an affair with a local haberdasher and that she had... Can you guess what I'm even going to say here? Gonorrhea. Sorry. Lane failed to appear at court and was convicted of slander. Susanna and John Hall had one daughter, Elizabeth Hall Nash Barnard, who was born in 1608. Elizabeth, despite being married twice, had no children and appears to be William Shakespeare's last surviving descendant. So I'm not sure that the clue from I deserved it could come from any living relative of Shakespeare. What about the other daughter, Judith? In February 1616, Judith married Thomas Quiney, a vintner of Stratford-upon-Avon. Apparently, William didn't like this fellow too much. He specifically wrote Thomas Quiney out of his will. Quiney was charged in the local church court with carnal copulation and impregnating a woman named Margaret Wheeler. Both she and the baby died in childbirth, though. William revised his will to ensure that Judith's claims to his estate was protected and that nothing would go to Quiney. Judith and Thomas Quiney had three sons in the years after they married. Their names were Shakespeare, Richard, and Thomas. Sadly, baby Shakespeare Quiney died at six months old, and Richard and Thomas Quiney the Younger both died in 1639, aged 21 and 19, respectively. So there were no Shakespearean descendants on that line either. But back to William while he was alive. He retired from the theatre in 1613, which may have been timed with the destruction of the Globe Theatre in a fire on June 29th, 1613. That's only 53 years before the Great Fire of London that destroyed much of the medieval parts of our fine city in 1666. If I remember correctly, that was the same time period as the Great Plague that killed nearly 100,000 English men and women. The 1660s were a terrible time to be a Londoner, that's for sure. But I'm sorry, my dear doll, but you were talking about the fine Bill Shakespeare. 
William Shakespeare died on April 23rd, 1616, which may have also been his birthday. He was 52. Shakespeare was buried in the chancel of the Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon with a monument on the wall placed near his grave. His last will and testament was signed about a month before his death. He left most everything to his daughter, Susanna, and her line of the family, which we know died out with Elizabeth Barnard in 1670. Famously, the line from his will that gets the most attention cites that he gave his wife, Anne, his second best bed with the furniture. For those of us who think that might be a slight, his best bed would likely have been reserved for guests, meaning the second best bed was probably the marital bed shared by William and his wife. Parting is such sweet sorrow, isn't it? The sweetest dob. Meanwhile, I found some information about our good Willie's first folio. The first folio, printed in 1623, is the first published collection of Shakespeare's plays, produced seven years after his death. Its title is Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies, and it groups his plays into those categories, comedies, histories and tragedies, for the first time. Out of the 36 plays included in the first folio, 18 had never been published before. Do we know why it was called the first folio? Of course. A folio is a large book made by folding printing sheets of paper in half, with each sheet forming four pages. This format was usually reserved for history, religion, and other weighty subjects. The first folio was the first folio ever published in England devoted exclusively to plays. Mm. Before 1623, about half of Shakespeare's plays were published in quartos, small one-play books made by folding sheets of paper twice to create eight pages per sheet. Quartos were like the easily disposable paperbacks of today, and relatively few of them survive. A folio was more expensive and sturdier, so it was more likely to last. To produce it, two pages of text were printed on each side of a sheet, creating four pages in all. The sheet was then folded in half. In most cases, three folded sheets were nested together to form a self-contained 12-page choir. A small number of choirs had different lengths. The first folio, which is more than 900 pages long, is made up of one choir after another. 900 pages! Without the first folio, these plays might have been lost forever. The 18 plays that appear for the first time in the first folio are All's Well That Ends Well, Antony and Cleopatra, As You Like It, The Comedy of Errors, Coriolanus, Cymbeline, Henry VI Part One, Henry VIII, Julius Caesar, King John, Macbeth, Measure for Measure, The Taming of the Shrew, The Tempest, Timon of Athens, Twelfth Night, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, and The Winter's Tale. Shakespeare's original manuscript copies of the plays have been gone for centuries, so the early printed editions, including the first folio, are the closest things we have to the plays as he wrote them. The title page of the first folio includes an original portrait of Shakespeare, engraved by the artist Martin Droschut. The Droschut engraving is one of the very few portraits of Shakespeare that are considered authentic. It was approved by those who worked on the first folio and had known Shakespeare. Say, that reminds me of a joke, Wattle. Who is the greatest chicken killer in all of Shakespeare. Why, I'm sure I don't know, Dob. Who is the greatest chicken killer in all of Shakespeare? Macbeth, because he did murder most foul. Hmm. <laughs> did you learn anything else about the portrait of Shakespeare at the National Portrait Gallery? Why, yes, Dob. Thank you for reminding me. The National Portrait Gallery portrait is the only one that has good claim to have been painted from life. It may be by a painter named John Taylor, who was an important member of the Painter Stainers Guild in the early 17th century. The portrait is known as the Shandus Portrait, after a previous owner, the Duke of Shandus, and it was the first portrait to be acquired by the National Portrait Gallery when it was founded in 1856, a mere 11 years ago. Let me see what else I've got in my copious notes. Hmm. 
Shakespeare's earliest plays were likely one of the parts of King Henry VI written between 1589 and 1591. And his last play was probably The Two Noble Kinsmen, which he co-wrote with John Fletcher around 1613. What was Shakespeare's longest play? Hamlet. It contains a little more than 4,000 lines. And his shortest? A comedy of errors, which reminds me... Wattle opened the window and whistled at a young street urchin leaning against the closest lamppost. Without exchanging a word, the boy tipped his cap at Wattle and raced off. Wattle and Dobb continued to discuss possible avenues to examine. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Fair as foul and foul as fair, hover through the fog and filthy air. And after a short time, the street urchin returned and knocked at the door. Mervyn Minfield, my boy, what have you got for us today? Well, sir, I do wonder if this may be of any help. Mervyn doffed his tatty tweed cap, removing from it a folded-up piece of newspaper. He sheepishly wiped one soot-covered hand onto his breeches and extended the paper to Wattle. Stonehen hinges head for heels, Wiltshire, 24th of June this year. The land of Sir Edward Antrobus, upon which this prehistoric monument Stonehenge is located, should perhaps be better served by a more mindful caretaker. It appears that at least a quarter of the standing stones are no longer standing where previous illustrations and newfangled photographs have shown them. Sir Antrobus, when asked about the missing stone's whereabouts, claimed to have no knowledge of the situation. The finest archaeologists in England have pledged to visit the legendary site after receiving notification from this correspondent. If this nation's treasures are vanishing, the people need to know. How could anybody even remove the massive segments of Stonehenge? From what I can recall, the Saracen stones are around four metres high. That's around 13 feet for our American friends. 2.1 metres wide, or about seven feet, and they weigh around 25 tonnes apiece. By Jingo, this must be linked with the theft of Shakespeare's birthplace. Mervyn, what have you heard from the other boys of Marlebone? Well, sirs, you might want to rendezvous with Mr. Dickens. What the Dickens would Charles Dickens have to do with this mystery? Ugh, unless... It might all be coming together now, Dob. Mervyn? Wattle scribbled furiously on a piece of crisp stationery. Please take this to Mr. Dickens at once. We shall meet him at the Bull and Spectacles at half six. Mervyn, you and the Marlebone boys have earned this. Fortune always favours the brave, Mr. Wattle. Will Charles Dickens give our investigators the information which they seek? Who on earth is strong enough to move one of the rocks from Stonehenge? And where's that tuba solo they keep promising me? Find out after this message from one of today's sponsors. Calling all Minute Maniacs, Second Psychos, and Epoch Enthusiasts. It's that time of year again. After an incredibly successful 2019 conference, who could forget the surprise appearance of H.G. Wells' great-great-granddaughter, Caitlin? The organizers of TimeCon 2020 have so much more in store for this year's con. Hosted by Greenwich, England for the third year in a row, prizes, giveaways, special appearances and panels by the superstars of chronology, like time scientist Brian Green, theoretical physicist Lee Smolin, and Back to the Future star, Christopher Lloyd. And don't forget your time-themed costume for the 10th Annual Clock Cocktails. Join us February 28th and 29th and get your time on at TimeCon. TimeCon, because time is a flat circle, you might as well enjoy it.
Wattle, his tuba Archibald, and Dob huddled around the corner table at the Bull and Spectacles, each holding a proper pint of porter, and scan the room for the man who may hold the solution to their mystery. My new favourite word is one of Shakespeare's hapax legomena. You know, a word that only appears once throughout the entire body of work of a given author. In Love's Labour's Lost, he created the word honorific ability to tutinitatibus, meaning the state of being able to achieve honours. You know, that's also the longest word in the English language, featuring only alternating consonants and vowels. Quite right. Oi, Wartle, I forgot. Doesn't Mr. Dickens sometimes summer in Kent? Not when he has a scheduled reading in the theatre next door tonight at eight o'clock. As if on cue, Charles Dickens appeared, with young Mervyn close behind. He spotted Waddle and Dob, who had procured a glass of sherry for the noted author. Mr. Dickens, we do thank you so much for meeting us on such short notice. How could I refuse? After you identified the fellow who stole my manuscript to our mutual friend a few years ago, I'm indebted to you both. And your suggestion to change the name from that guy John we both know was a stroke of genius. Mr. Dickens, I think we now need to cash in on that favour. What can you tell us about... Here, both Waddle and Dob leaned in a little closer to Charles Dickens. Shakespeare's birthplace. Charles Dickens was surprised. Why, it's been 20 years. But yes, I helped to keep the old Shakespeare house in Stratford. Keep it in Stratford? When the last remaining descendants of the Shakespeare family, not William's line, of course, but something like his sister Joan's great-great-nephew, had finally died off in 1806, I believe, the property was sold to a butcher. And when the butcher died, his widow put the house up for sale in 1846. I had visited the house before, as did many of the authors in this country. Byron, Tennyson, Keats, Walter Scott. We even scratched our names into the walls and windows. But when the house was up for sale in 1846... Dob reviewed his notes from the public records office. You all wanted to make sure the house stayed in Stratford. Instead of where? That bloody American showman wanted to take it brick by brick to the United States. So you and your literary chums formed the Shakespeare Birthday Committee in 1846. And you raised the money to keep the house where it stood. One of our national treasures. The place where it all began for William Shakespeare. In 1847, we were renamed the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust by an act of parliament. And that American fellow... Oh, I see. That's where I know the name from. Now he's back for revenge. What if it's too late? I know where we have to go, Wattle. Dob stood up and drained his pint glass. Wattle put himself into his tuba. We're off to the Cotswolds, Mr. Dickens. When you see that Yankee bastard, you tell him what a humbug he is. Won't you come with us, Mr. Dickens? Dickens stared off into the distance, a haunted look in his eye. Oh no, I never ride trains anymore. (laughs) Will Waddle and Dob catch their man? Where are they headed? Will we ever get to hear the tuba? Come on, it's practically Chekhov's tuba at this point. Find out in our exciting conclusion after this message from today's sponsor. The following is a radio advertisement from 1924. Brought out of the vault for our listeners by Big Candy. Doctor, doctor, my lungs hurt. Oh, doctor, my children won't stop yelling. And my 
tumbling off. And I think I broke my tibia. Have no fear, ladies. Mrs. Heckety Dragonwagon's Cure-All Liniment Tonic cures it all. This patent medicine treats rheumatism, nervous irritability, neuralgia, toothache, earache, hysteria, stiffness in the joints, bone weakness, pain, bruises, sore throat, dysentery, cholera, pals, dropsy, corn, cracked hands, fresh cuts, cold sores, pimples, colic, thrush, diphtheria, coughs, cold, haze, fever, malaria, influenza, bronchitis, asthma, whooping cough, spitting of blood, and all lung complaints, including consumption. And best of all, no leeches! Cure what ails you. Have a swig of Mrs. Heckety Dragon Wagon's Cure-All Liniment Tonic. Now with more cocaine! See, sugar's not all that bad, eh? Have some candy. Brought to you by Big Candy. Daybreak, the Cotswolds. Waddle and Dob, energized after a quick nap on the train ride from London, trudged up a hill through the tall grass. (sighs) We must be almost there, Dob. Just a few more meters. The detectives crested the hill. Below them, they saw an abandoned barn and some familiar massive stones. Blimey, would you look at that? Pieces of Stonehenge! The two quietly crept toward the abandoned barn. I knew it! But how did he move them? Suddenly, Waddle and Dob were struck by the unmistakable presence of a decidedly American personality. Freeze, dummies. Phineas Taylor Barnum! Well, 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 if it isn't the world-famous detectives, Waddle and Dabe. I knew the Queen wouldn't take this lightly. Was it my clue that led you here? Wait, is that a tuba? You didn't deserve this, Barnum. The Shakespeare birthplace is a national treasure. It belongs to England. What do you even want with an old building? Or Stonehenge. What are you going to do? Get people in America to pay you to see old things from England. You think there's a sucker bone every minute, don't you? Why does everyone think I said that? That wasn't me. Your American museum burnt down in 1865, didn't it? My life's work. My curiosities. You wouldn't understand what it's like. The constant struggle to produce larger and better things. The hungry public hanging on your every move. All they do is take, 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 take. They're gaping maws like baby birds, never full, never satisfied. And I keep pulling them out of my hat. The weird, the strange, and the remarkable. It's enough to make a man insane, I tell you, chasing after the next best thing. So yes, I took the birthplace. It's an international treasure, after all. I'd do it again in a heartbeat, too. How did you even move? Oh, you're strong, man. He is very strong. It's right there in his name. (laughs) Some detective. There are so many other things you could do now that you're not tied down to a museum. What if you put your energy into, I don't know, touring around your country with a circus? That's bloody brilliant, Waddle. Maybe we should quit the detective business and get ourselves some elephants and acrobats and... Now wait a minute. A traveling circus, you say? Complete with the menagerie and hippodrome. By touring around the United States, you'd get loads more money from the people in each town than you would by sticking some boried old British buildings and rocks in the moors. Tell you what, Barnum. You're a businessman. We'll give you that idea for free if you promise to put back the Shakespeare house and the Stonehenge monoliths exactly as you found them. But you must do it today. We won't even tell the Queen who borrowed them. We'll keep it out of the papers, but you have to promise you won't be stealing any more iconic monuments. From England, at least. What was that then? You have yourself a deal, fellas. I'll have my strongman return the Shakespeare house after breakfast. But Deb... Don't dab. I'd prefer if you reported the story once I've returned to America. Oh? I don't care what the newspapers say about me as long as they spell my name right. After all, without publicity, a terrible thing happens. Nothing. But now, 
Barnum hopped into the arms of his strongman. Carry me to breakfast, Gerald. Goodbye, my friends. Goodbye. What an unusual man, Wattle. Indeed, Dob. Well, I'm sure we won't be hearing too much from him anymore. Anyway, what's this about breakfast, eh? After confirming the return of the Shakespeare House and the first of the Stonehenge rocks, they are very heavy after all, our intrepid detectives began their journey back to London. Waddle and Dob found themselves discussing the case while seated with a young boy and his uncle in a railway carriage. Ho ho, what a successful case this has been! I'd love to read a story about detectives like you. Perhaps one day you can write exactly that, following in the footsteps of our friend, Mr. Dickens. Mind if I play a celebratory tubatoon? Old Archibald here gets awful knocky when he's not tooted on the regular. Oh, um, sure. I don't know, sir. If I were a world-famous detective, I'd play the violin. Maybe the detective in my story would do just that. Oh? Tell me more about the street urchins who work for you, Mr. Wattle. Of course. Please remind me of your name again, lad. It's Arthur. Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle, sir. What a twist! Another crime solved by the genius private detectives Waddle and Dob. Join us next week when our intrepid gumshoes solve the mystery of the Devil's Turnip. This episode of Waddle and Dob on the Case was produced by Tallboy Productions, written by and starring the hosts of Misinformation, a trivia podcast, with additional voice talents provided by the Mr.'s Information. Thank you so much to our loyal listeners who've propelled us to a full 100 episodes of our podcast. You all are the best. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.